Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good morning, Roshi. How are you today? Kirk, we made it. We did. The big 108. The big 108. 108 is a big number in Buddhism. It's kind of like a prime number for Buddhists. Uh, it's got so many meanings that uh, really nobody knows why. But uh, 108, it's a big thing. If you have uh, you know, your bead, there's actually 109 beads on the string. But one of the beads doesn't count. So it's really 108. There, there's a, an extra one that's just kind of a placeholder. But it's uh, 108. 108 is a big number in Buddhism. Well, the 109th one is kind of like a chapter break, right? It tells you you've gotten to the end and you can start over. That's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, 108 is a number that's, well, it's got a lot of significance. And I'm looking on Wikipedia. It is a Tetranachi number. I have no idea of what that is. It is the hyperfactorial of three, since it's the form of one factorial times two factorial times three factorial. I'm not good in math. It is the angle and degrees of the interior angles of a regular pentagon in Euclidean space. It's palindromic in bases 11, 17, 26, 35, and 53. And it's also nine dozen. I have no idea anything you just said, but <laughs> I know in a, in, in a lot of Eastern religions, Hinduism, Taoism, uh, uh, I believe, and and in Buddhism, and it, that 108 is a, a big number. For example, we have the 108 bono, which are kind of the 108 bad things, the 108 obstructions. And you know why there's 108 of them? Because? Because they had the number 108. They thought up, you know, bad things until they filled up the list. Right. Yeah. So, so some of them are quite like, you know, some of them are quite the same. It's like uh, getting upset. Getting angry, being annoyed, being really annoyed, you know. Uh, so, uh, but the, we have a uh, 108 Bono, not the singer from U2, by the way. No, no, no. And U2 is U2, not U108. Exactly. Exactly. 84 is also a big number. We talked about that in episode 84. It's kind of interesting that they had this obsession with numbers, but I guess you had to have some sort of framework, right? The Christians had the seven deadly sins, the Ten Commandments. In a way, having a number makes it easier to remember something, right? Remember that Buddhism originally was an oral tradition. So maybe people were remembering the nine dozens of the different things. Well, that could be as good a reason as any. The one I looked up here that uh, I, I got off the internet, so it must be true, says the following. The distance between the moon and the earth is 108 times diameter of the moon, but only once a month, because according to NASA, the moon's orbit around the Earth is not a perfect circle, but more of an ellipse. Similarly, the distance between the Earth and the sun is 108 times the diameter of the sun, which I, I, I think that means 
probably not true at all. But uh, if things are keep moving, eventually they get the right place and it's 108 times of something. I think that's what it means. Yeah, but that moon, sun, 108, that sounds like there's something going on there. Yes. Uh, speaking of something going on, we have a podcast to do. And our theme is not to sit here and talk about the uh, Fibonacci sequence, uh, which, by the no. way, also has 108 in there. That's one of the things on the list. But uh, yeah. we're going to talk looking back, looking back now. We're going to look back in the past, the distant past, before y your original face, before your parents were born. No, we're not going to go that far back. Well, Master, Master Dogen would say we could look back to the future, but that's another thing. But uh, we're going to look back to the past today. Wasn't that a movie in the 90s? Uh, the one where he gets, he's born as an old man and gets to be a baby? No, Back to the Future. Oh, Back to the Future 2, yes. Oh, but no, not Back to the Future 2. Back to the Future, future. 2. Well, wasn't there a Back to the Future 2 and 3 also? Anyway, we, we, we got to get going here. What's our okay, topic today? Okay, let's get today, going. Bert? What's our topic? We're looking back into the past. We're looking back into how we ended up here. What led us to be here? Looking at each other on a computer screen, half a world apart, talking about Zen Buddhism. The Big Bang. But we're not going to go that far back. No, we're not going to go that far. No, no. How did you get into Buddhism? That's where we decided we're going to... Uh, right. Start the story. What's your story, Kirk? How did you get into Buddhism? When I was in my early 20s, I was very intrigued by John Cage's music. Now, John Cage was interested in Zen. He wasn't a Zen practitioner, as you may read on the internet. It's not true. But he was very influenced. He went to a number of lectures by D.T. Suzuki in the 50s and the 60s. And at one point, I wanted to get a couple of books about Zen to read them. And I was probably about 23. Stopped at the Barnes & Noble on 6th Avenue, looked around. Weren't many Zen books back then. It's not like, you know, Wisdom and Shambhala and Lions were on all these publications. Back then, it was only, uh, you know, a handful of publishers. And the, the two books I bought were Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunryu Suzuki, which we've talked about a number of times, and Zen Flesh, Zen Bones by Paul Reps, which is a collection of koans, and he's got the ox herding stories, things like that. I remember reading them, and I didn't understand anything. Put them aside, kind of read things going in that direction. I was really interested in the I Ching for a while, and that kind of led me toward Chinese philosophy. Is that the one the about Dao the sexual positions? Oh, no, no, that's the, no, that's the Kama Sutra. The I get them confused. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah. And that led me to, to read the Tao Te Ching and things like that. One day, my ex-wife was an engineer. She got sent to Norway for a year to work on the design of an offshore ah, oil a platform. a great Buddhist country, Norway. That explains it. Is, it is, definitely. And I went along, and I didn't have a lot to do. I was teaching English as a foreign language in France at the time, and I got some teaching work in Oslo. But I didn't need to work because she had expatriate um, salary and all sorts of stuff. So one day, I went into a bookstore. They had a big English bookstore in the center of Oslo. And I bought a book. It was called The Buddhist Handbook. Don't remember who wrote it. Basically, a simple description of Buddhism, the, the, the different flavors, the Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Theravada, etc. And I remember this really distinctly. I was sitting in front of a museum in Oslo reading this book, and I was reading about the Four Noble Truths, and then boom, I had this massive Kensho experience where the whole world just opened up, and everything was clear, and I saw everything. And it was kind of weird because... It was a really simple explanation, but it just made so much sense that it just hit me really strong. A year later, when I went back to Paris, I bought a couple of books about meditation. I think the first one was Meditation in Action by Chogyam Trungpa. Yeah. 
And the other one was a book on insight meditation by Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein, which was like, again, these were pretty much the only books available at the time. And I read through and I followed the instructions and I sat and then boom, another huge Kenso experience. Of course, at that point, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to get this every time. And then I realized that it wasn't like that. Over the years, I followed paths looking through different traditions until, what, more than 15 years ago, I kind of realized that Zen, particularly Soto Zen, was the most, was the closest to the way I think about the Dharma. And have you had uh, many of those experiences since? I've had a handful. I learned to not search for them because they don't come when you're looking for them. I learned to not grasp at them, that they're just, they're like a door open on something else to give you a glimpse. That's the way I see it. Uh, what's interesting is every one of I can remember every one of those experiences. It, it's kind of like they're burned into my brain. If I think about a particular experience, I can almost transport myself there. Yeah. That I was in this place doing this at this time, boom, that sort of thing. That's a wonderful story. Thank you. And I'm glad it brought us together. For better or for worse, as they for say. Better. Only for better. <laughs> I will begin the tale with Steely Dan. Oh, come on. And though you've told me not to sing, I will not. But there is that song, you know, Bodhisattva. So I was in college and I joined a fraternity. Go Delta Sigma Phi. Hey, Yit Boss, (laughs) any Delta Sigs out there? Yit Boss, man. And uh, you need a, 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 a name for the back of your shirt, you know, a nickname. And I just happened to be listening to, uh, Steely Dan, and I heard the word bodhisattva. And I realized at that point, I didn't know what a bodhisattva was. So I reached for something we used to have back in the old days called a dictionary. A dictionary. It was a paper thing, and I looked it up, and it gave me an explanation for what a bodhisattva was, which made no sense whatsoever. It was someone who had the possibility of attaining enlightenment, but decided to stay back in the world to help other sentient beings. Well, didn't know what that was, but it was a cool name. Fit on the back of the shirt. Possibly I had to pay by the letter, so it was quite long, I remember. But anyway, I was Bodhisattva in college, having no idea. That was your nickname. I was at a Southern Baptist college, by the way. <laughs> I, you know, I had no idea about Buddhism. I had no idea anything, but I just knew this one word, Bodhisattva. Well, that was the end of the story until I got to law school. Um, I think I've told this story before, but uh, uh, I'm doing well on the surface. Um, uh, Got to the nice suit, got the nice future, got the nice salary all lined up sooner than I uh, imagined. I got the nice red sports car, right? With the... the, You had a red sports car. I had a red sports car, yeah, with the... Dude. Yeah. And uh, I had the whole thing going, and I was absolutely miserable. Uh, smoking, not knowing who I was, depressed, uh, not uh, happy at all. Did I mention I was depressed? I was just, it was just yeah. miserable. And uh, when well, you're in law school and they teach you to fight, argue, uh, it's all about win, win, win. And that's all we do for three years is we, uh, we debate, we argue, and we win. Or you lose. You either win or you lose. It's, there's no in between. And uh, I'm uh, just um, completely confused by it. And somebody said, well, there's a little group here, a Zen group, you come, sit down, stare at a wall, and just stop that. It made perfect sense to me right away. Because it was the opposite, the opposite of 
of everything that we were doing in law school. And not only that, I, I've spoken about this. You know, I grew up in a family where people always were worried about things, worried about the tomorrow, worried about yesterday for some reason, or remembering <laughs> things that happened 40 years ago, or anticipating this, or this, all kinds of, and, and you stop. You just stop. Right away, I got it. I got it and haven't looked back. That's interesting. Yet you're still, well, you're not a lawyer anymore. You're a legal translator, right? So you've still retained some of that past, but you filtered it and shunted it to the side. I confess that uh, I think I'm not the only Zen guy like this. I am a type A personality that is being managed by my Zen practice, Mm. but would have spun off long ago. I would be on, I don't know, my if I with my third or fourth divorce, uh, I would be at my AA meeting. I would be uh, uh, I would have crashed the red sports car. All kinds of things, bad things would have happened if I had not discovered this path that uh, showed me wisdom. And while I don't deny, I, I think it's it's okay to be who we are in moderation. So I am a moderate type. I'm an A minus. <laughs> <laughs> So what was the car? Uh, at the time, I wanted to, uh, it, it was a Bimmer. Yeah. Well, that's not such a big deal. That's not a sports car. Hey, look, I was just a first-year associate at a law firm, <laughs> yeah, but a big law firm, you know, and, uh, and it, uh, it was... Yeah, but I saw that movie with Tom Cruise. He had a better car than that. Yeah, okay. Well, anyway, I'm not into cars anymore. Now I'm driving a, you know, a 10-year-old thing. I'm happy. I'm content. Wait, didn't didn't you tell me that you want to buy an Audi something just a couple of weeks ago? I I I still we had this episode. I said I still lust for the neighbor once in a while, and I and I admit it in my heart. I don't act upon it. We did this episode right. just, and I said sometimes I find anger or jealousy or ambition arising in me, and I know how to cool the fires. So I admit, okay, once in a while I see Mike in the car of my dreams. Okay, but I don't buy it. <laughs> For a couple of reasons. First off, it's wiser not to be attached to the car. Second off, saves a heck of a lot of money. You don't buy the car, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. win-win. Cars are expensive these days. Yeah. yeah. So how did you get from the point of discovering Zen to wanting to help others discover it? I, I want to say to teaching Zen, but it's not really that, is it? It's part teaching, it's part sharing, it's part imparting knowledge. How did you get to that point? What was the tipping point that made you want to share this? Well, somewhere very wisely, while all my friends in law school were rushing off to Wall Street in various places, I got the chance to go to China. I went to China when China wasn't cool. Believe me, China was not cool then. People said, you're crazy, China. Nothing's going to happen there. (laughs) Well, uh, in those days, it was wonderful. And uh, I had a teacher, Chinese teacher, who... uh, uh, I barely could understand because he had a dialect, and and uh, but he he also taught me sit here, cross your legs, stare at the wall. So that part I got. Didn't know anything else he was he was telling me, but he he said to do that. And then I went back to Florida, and again wisely, I could have stuck with the law firm. And I if I had stuck with the law firm, law firm, just another ten years, I had a twenty five percent of being a partner. At which point yeah. I would be on my third divorce and my ulcer. At that point, but uh, it was a choice between but, that. But, but you'd get a Porsche or a Ferrari at that stage. I, yeah, no, I'd be beyond the bimmer. Yes, I wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but uh, someone uh, said, who happened to be my present wife, Mina, who I met in China. 
she's Japanese. She, uh, the idea came up to come to Japan. And I did. And that was the smartest decision I ever made. So now you work as a translator. Um, I worked as a translator for many years when I was in France. There's a lot of stress translating, isn't there? Yes. You, you have clients who have deadlines. I need this yesterday. Or they give you 10,000... Where they give you a 10,000-word document, and they want it in two days. Generally, when I was translating, I calculated 2,500 words a day. So two days for 10,000 words is pretty much impossible. So do you find a lot of stress in your translation, or is it easier to deal with now that you've got this, I want to say, understanding of stress and management and an ability to let it wash over you? I think that Whatever you do in life, for most people, even to be, believe it or not, a Zen monk is incredibly stressful. The most of the monks I know who are in the monastery actually have very demanding careers. They're running from one funeral to another. It was recently the Obon season, and they have to get to like 60 houses in one day to light the incense and do a chance and drink tea. And the, I, I swear they drink so many cups of tea, they must carry a plastic <laughs> bag with them for you, you know what. But anyway, Anything is tedious. I think we need a little, shall we say, the sand in the shell that makes the pearl, mm. you know, in the oyster. To have some demanding work like that, if we use it wisely, is the key to this practice. So, yes, uh, it's sometimes very tedious, very hard, very stressful. And what you do with that makes all the difference in the world. So that was a great lesson of this practice. When you studied with um, Guru Nishijima in Japan and he gave you Dharma transmission, were you surprised? Well, that, that, let's take the rest of the story up to that point. Okay. Well, fill in the gap then. Okay. So I'm in Japan. I'm sitting at a bunch of different places, including Sojiji, as a layperson, which is the head monastery of uh, all Sotos. And it's like, uh, I was looking for a Zen like group locally. The Vatican, yeah, I was looking for a local Zen group, and I said, oh, okay, I'll go to this place. What is it? And it turned out it was at the Vatican, the Vatican of Zen. I mean, and it's a magnificent place. But uh, Nishijima was uh, a fellow who believed that working people, including foreigners, if they feel a calling, should and could be priests. And that is impossible in Japan. Uh, unless you go to a place like Sojiji and you're Japanese, and you want to become a parish priest, it's virtually impossible. But then there's this crazy dude named Dishijima who believes that if you love this way and you love sitting Zazen, there is a way. So I sat with him uh, on and off since 89, more and more uh, as the years passed. And uh, I didn't want to be a priest. Well, one day he said to me, why don't you be a priest? And I said, what does that involve? And actually, he didn't say that. So I'm saying, he said, would you like to, he believed that lay people and priests need to merge together, which I believe too. I think, uh, you know, the thing that we're, I'm a priest and you're a lay person, he, if you have the calling, it doesn't matter what you call yourself and it doesn't matter how you dress or anything like that. So um, he said, would you become my student? And I said, I would. And then a few years later, he said, would you like to be a teacher? And I said, uh, well, that okay, because you know why? Because it saved my life, and I think it can help other people. That's the only reason. So he said teacher as opposed to priest, monk, whatever. He said, would you take my dharma, actually, is how he put it. But 
the only reason <laughs> I became a priest is, and, and, and he, he changed his opinion too, because we said, you know, what we think what you're doing is really cool here about merging lay and priest, but no one else in the Zen world is going to take it seriously. So we're going back to America. It was Brad Warner and me. We're going back to America. And you better make us kosher priests. You know, you better give us all the paperwork and, and the robes and everything. Right. Otherwise, they're not going to understand what you're doing. But in my heart, uh, we're still knocking down the barriers between what it means to be a priest or a layperson with a, a house and a mortgage and a family and kids and a pet dog. If you have the calling, that's what's important. So you went back to America at some point? Yeah. And continued working as a lawyer? Yeah, and then I went, you know, I was going back and forth to Japan. And uh, I've, uh, we talked about this before. Then this internet thing started, and, and then I started Tree Leaf, and, and that's uh, what happened. But I got to ask you, too, what kept you in it for all these years? I've never really thought about it. It's just, it kind of feels like coming home. You know, it kind of feels right. like it's the right place to be. It's that right. simple. I've never really intellectualized it. Like, why am I doing this? Why, you know, what are my reasons? What are the pros and cons? It wasn't like that. It's more just of a feeling that it's something that is right for me. Right. That's it. That's it. I've That's never it. doubted That's the it. Answer. It's like you, you find the certain person, you find a certain place to live. And sometimes it's wrong, but when it's right, you know, it's right. It's just like that. Yeah. And you hope that it continues to be right because you know that you're changing all the time and everything else is changing. And so for, for a few years, I was involved in the Tibetan tradition and that felt right until it didn't feel right. right. And then when I discovered Zen, that felt more right, if that makes sense. No. Because I don't like the trappings. I understand that Tibetan Buddhism is popular in the West because people like you know, the fancy clothes and the colors and the mandalas and the, the music and all that. I'm not into that part of practice. I, I'm more interested in the heart of practice, which is simple. Now, that leads to one of two questions I want to address on this Look Back episode. Number one question is, what kind of image did you have of Buddhism when you first got in it that turned out to be completely wrong? Well, probably around then was when Tibetan Buddhism had started to become popular in the West. I don't remember when the the movie came out with the, what was the, the last, not the last, what was the movie with the young Dalai Lama? What was it called? Uh, last, uh, Brad Warner, in Tibet, not Brad Warner, Brad Pitt in Tibet. That one. Right. Well, seven Years in Tibet. Seven Years in Tibet with Brad Pitt. It was about the time that that movie Seven Years in Tibet came out. In France, where I was living at the time, there was a lot of attention because a lot of the Tibetans, they settled in Switzerland and France and Germany because of the mountains. Um, so there was a lot of attention to that. Now, I worked in a bookstore in France from 1992, about the end of 1993. So I saw all the books as they were being published on Buddhism and other Eastern religions. And there were a lot of Tibetan Buddhism books being published. So it was something that was in the ether. I just realized after a while that I didn't like that fancy glitzy Catskill Zen. I got to put an asterisk, which is great for some people. Different strokes for different folks. Some people need that thing to grasp to. Well, no, um, it's, the, I think it's good medicine for some people, even better than just... Yeah, I think, well, it, it's, it's a shiny thing, and a lot okay. of people are attracted right. to a shiny thing. Me, I've always been attracted to the more subtle things. 
in my case, I actually thought that if you practice Zen and you meet the Zen master, they've all had these amazing experiences where, where frankly, they understood the whole universe and all their problems in the world dissolved. And that disappeared with a couple of experiences. One was when I met Azuma Roshi, my teacher at Sojiji, Japanese fellow, spoke very broken English. And one day, I, his wife died. And a few weeks later, I, 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 he was lecturing us on, you know, Buddhism and life and death is just a state of mind. And I saw him kind of uh, crying, teary-eyed, when he was talking about his wife. And a stupid me, 27 years old, whatever I was, and I said, uh, Roshi, I, I see you're ulterior-eyed about your, your wife uh, ha, had passed, but you said uh, that life and death, uh, according to Master Dogen, is a state of mind. Why, why are you ulterior-eyed talking about your wife? And he said, I, I cry, wife die. Uh, which I realized at that point that uh, doing the Zen practice does not take all your worldly problems away. But I'm going to tell you something. Yes, you do have experiences, big and small, and it gets in your bones, in which um, this universe does make sense. And we'll just leave it there on that point and move on to the next question. So this reminds me again, uh, the John Cage link. He had a piece of music, a work called Indeterminacy, where he read a number of little stories, each of which lasted a minute. So if they were very short, he read them very slowly. There was some really strange music in the background. And the one that I've always remembered is this one. Before studying Zen, men are men and mountains are mountains. While studying Zen, things become confused. After studying Zen, men are men and mountains are mountains. After telling this, Dr. Suzuki was asked, what is the difference between before and after? He said, no difference, only the feet are a little bit off the ground. That is just a Terrible story or terrible <laughs> translation or something, but it, it, it makes the point. You do have uh, experiences uh, just as build, just as, uh, you know, the stereotype, just as you experienced apparently a few times, Kurt, where you, I don't know, things turn, I, I say things turn inside out and everything flows into everything and, 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 and you kind of don't disappear because you are everything, but you're not. and it's wonderful, and it's sometimes very subtle in the bones. And I think I've always been prone to those experiences. I, I always can have them at the let me let me see if I can have it right now. Little little bit, yeah, having it right now, yeah, little bit. And uh, and that that's true. And suddenly the world makes sense. I describe it as the sailor on the boat who doesn't know where the ocean came from, can't name every fish's name, doesn't know every grain of sand on every beach. But he dips his finger in the brine and tastes it on the tip of his tongue, and he realizes that water and waves and sky and boat and sailor and fish and every twist and turn and wherever the ocean comes from and wherever is over the horizon is him, and he is that, and yet, and yet, yeah, like that. And yet. So it's, that, that is real. Just as much as build when you get into Zen, that's a real thing even though it doesn't solve all your problems. For me, the moral of the John Cage story is that when you have experiences, you realize that everything is as it has always been. It's just that you're looking at it differently. Yes. 
and that you're not seeking to change it, that you're accepting that things are the way they are. And I mean, the very nature of dukkha is that you want to change things and you can realize in small parts of your life that there are things that don't need to be changed that you can just let them flow. And things that you still need to change because, sure. uh, you know, I, I like to say uh, if you're a, a drunken, wife-beating, alcoholic bank robber, don't accept that so much, you know, <laughs> don't completely accept that. I mean, but there's a certain part where we see through the dukkha, we see through that, to the wholeness, which is of this world. So uh, Zen is a lot about seeing this world many ways at once, and it all fits together. And, and, and it's a beautiful thing, and we need to keep living, and we need to live gently, and we need, live, live, need to be nonviolent, and, and uh, we need to be a little more loving. That's all true, too. Uh, so that part is uh, all true, just as much as the first day I set foot in uh, Buddhism. But now here, here's the question for you. that uh, the, What, when you got into Buddhism, turned out not to be as you expected, and you didn't like it, but now you've grown to appreciate it. Is there anything other than me? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I tried not to think, oh, I don't like this, other than, okay, I don't want to be involved in the Tibetan tradition because it's not for me, that sort of thing. Maybe, remember, one of those first two books that I bought was Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and it's got a lot of Zen koans, and I looked at that, and I was thinking, this makes absolutely no sense. And if I read some of those koans now, I read them and I think, this makes absolutely no sense, but I understand why it makes no sense. Yeah, the, the koans are, people think that they're nonsensical uh, puzzles that are just to throw a monkey wrench in the mind. They actually mean something. And people say that if you can explain the koans, that's not the koans. That's sort of those Rinzai folk. They, they don't like this. Yeah. But I'm telling you, Soto teachers will say that like, like music, like poetry, uh, the koans actually are saying something in just very creative ways. They bend the language. They, there's a lot of humor there. They cite there are a lot of references to old poems, old stories. Some of them, you know, a thousand years old. We don't get the joke anymore. But there's real meaning in those koans. Uh, so don't give up on the koan. I enjoy reading koan collections from time to time. I enjoy... Reading something where I have no expectation of understanding it. And I think that's really important to read a koan. Don't think you're going to figure it out. Just like a poem, just let it flow over you. But I think you can understand them because there are teachings there. So if you kind of understand a koan, that doesn't mean you're wrong. No. For example, if you hear a beautiful you know, song on the radio and suddenly you get what the singer's singing about, that doesn't mean you're wrong. You get it. And uh, koans are like that. Even if it's Steely Dan, it's okay. Even if it's Steely Dan singing about uh, your China and your bodhisattvas, yes. I still don't know what that song is about, actually, though, but that's, that's another thing. Now, for me, a lot of the traditions at first didn't mean anything to, to, to me, and I was a tremendous modernizer, and I still am. I don't like uh, a lot of the more magical, uh, legendary supernatural elements of Buddhism. But over the years, as I've grown older, not that I believe in any of that stuff anymore now than I did then, I understand how it does resonate with people. That's why I told you, take another look at the Tibetans. Not for me, not my cup of tea, but that is not just people getting interested in shiny things. It actually saves people. For example, I had a friend with cancer, 
and he didn't know what to do. Didn't know what to do. Didn't want to do. I gave him a Durrani. I don't believe in Durrani. Durrani are kind of like magic sayings to, to work a cure. But I had nothing to do with my friend. My friend, I want to help. My heart is breaking. He's, he's, give me some hope. I gave him a Durrani. And I said, just chant this. It'll make it better. And he starts chanting it. And he starts chanting it. And I think it took a little of his pain away. And I'm going to break into tears. Because it worked. And I don't believe in the Ronnie anymore now than I did when I gave it to him. But I saw it worked for him. Gave him a little comfort in his difficulty. That's what a priest does, my friend. I'm going to tell you this in any of the churches. There are always priests like us who don't believe half the baloney were sitting there on the altar. You're turning the wine into what? The guy's blood? What? <laughs> what? Okay. But someone comes up to the altar and it, it brings them comfort, brings them strength. You've done it. You've worked a miracle. I believe in that kind of miracle. That's what's changed for me. Okay. Okay. We're going to wrap up. We have a little announcement to make. Since we've hit the round number of 108, we're going on a brief hiatus for a couple of months. Work is getting in the way and we need to take some time off, but we will be back. I'm going to my private island in Tahiti. Really? You got a private island? That's where the donations go. Don't tell anybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.